This morning, I'll be reading scripture out of the book of James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Becky. All right, good morning. It's good to see you all here. My job is to keep you awake for about 25 minutes while we talk about Scripture. Um, I need your cooperation with that. Uh, So I know you're not going to have a problem, but the person next to you might. And so just get your elbows ready. If you catch anybody snoozing, you probably need to sit next to somebody. (laughs) We're starting a new series on the book of James today. James is a letter uh, that you would find towards the end of the Bible uh, that was written by, believe it or not, the half-brother of Jesus. So Jesus had uh, other brothers and sisters um, that were younger than him, obviously, and uh, As far as we can tell, James was one of these brothers, and he probably wasn't a Jesus follower until after the resurrection. And if you have an older brother, you can guess why, right? How, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he's the son of God? It, like, probably dying and coming back to life. That's probably what it would take. And so uh, his brother rose from the dead, and James became a follower of Jesus. And not just a follower, but he um, became a leader in the early church. So the church in Jerusalem, James was one of the leaders, maybe the uh, main leader. Uh, When we read in Acts 15 about how the leadership uh, was making decisions, James was right there in the middle of that, and uh, was known as James the Wise. And so he obviously picked up a lot from Jesus' teaching. When we read this letter, he doesn't mention Jesus a lot. But when you read the teachings, they're clearly drawn from the teachings of Jesus. And it's really easy to see the connections there. And so um, he is uh, gonna give us some wisdom. What I love about James's letter is that it's really practical. I don't know if you've ever read anything in the Bible and you thought, well, I don't know what that means. Um, and maybe some of you, that's why you don't read the Bible because you read some things and you're like, I don't get it. Um, I'll move on. Show me a movie, a video or something. You don't find that in James. When you read what James has to say, you're gonna be like, okay, that's pretty clear. I don't like it, but it's really clear because he's kind of tough. I mean, James is like a coach. If you've ever had a coach that pushed you, right? That made you work hard, that expected your best all the time, that corrected your mistakes. That's kind of what James is like. James wants us to get to a certain place. We're gonna talk about that. And he's gonna push us to get there. And so um, we're going to dive into this here in just a minute. The the question that I think helps frame this conversation for us 
is, does my faith make a real difference in my life? Does my faith make a real difference in my life? Just ask yourself that. For some of you, that's like all you need. You can just, you can check out right now because that question is enough for you to kind of wrestle with for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. Does my faith make a real difference in my life? And what, what would that look like? Real faith in real life is gonna look like following Jesus against the current of our culture. Following Jesus against the current of our culture. So our, our culture, people who don't follow Jesus, there's different ways of life, right? People who do follow Jesus are, are going against that cultural current because uh, Jesus calls us to a different life. And so when I ask, does my faith make a real difference in my life? What I'm asking is, does my life look different from those of people who don't follow Jesus and in what ways? And so we're gonna wrestle with that as we go through this series. So James is gonna start with a conversation about perseverance and talk to us about the importance of, of, of pushing through adversity to get to something better on the other side. I think we can all agree that adversity is a part of life. Has anybody ever experienced adversity? Some of you are like, on the way to church this morning, there was some adversity, but we pushed through and we made it. So even though we recognize adversity is a part of life, I think a lot of us try to orchestrate our lives in such a way that we avoid adversity, sometimes at all costs. Sometimes we think that pain or suffering is the worst thing that could happen, and we will avoid it at all costs. For example, if uh, a young person, none of you are gonna be able to relate to this, but if you ever did anything against your parents' rules, right? And, um, and they, they sort of think they caught you. You have a couple choices. You can own up to it and take the punishment, or you can try to get out of it by lying. Now, none of you would ever, that second choice, you're like, that's a choice? You can, do, you can lie to your parents? No, you can't. But some people do. I don't know. Um, I did when I was your age, so I'll just go ahead and tell you that. I snuck out of the house a lot. That's another story. So... <laughs> Our mindset is, I will do anything to avoid the punishment. The, the worst thing that can happen is the punishment. And so if I have to lie to get out of that, then, then that's, I'll, take the, I'll take my chances with the lie. But what if that's not the worst thing that can happen? What if the punishment's not the worst thing? What if it's actually becoming a liar? <laughs> what if that's the worst thing? Because lying destroys relationships. It breaks down connections between human beings. So we, we gotta start thinking about like, okay, is adversity, is, is pain and suffering the worst thing that can happen? And so James is gonna challenge us with this right out of the gate when we jump into this letter. So let's pick up in James chapter one, verse one. If you see anything on the screen that's underlined, that's your part, please read that aloud. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Okay, well, let's pause for a second. James doesn't just say, hey, tough times are coming. Just grin and bear it, you know, try to get through it, you know, toughen up. He says, consider it joy. That is crazy, right? Can we just agree like that this is kind of unrealistic? This, to have this mindset that when pain and suffering and adversity and hardship come my way, I'm supposed to consider it joy? That doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense. 
why in the world would he say this and then expect that people can actually live this out? The people that he's writing to, they're not, they're not really like us. They're living in a world that is very different. So the comforts that we all enjoy don't even exist yet for most of them. A lot of these people are poor. They struggle just to put enough food on the table for the next day. And now that they're Jesus followers, they're finding that their culture doesn't really embrace them as Jesus followers. And it's really difficult to live the life of a Jesus follower in their culture. And James is looking at these people saying, I know it's hard, but consider it joy. Now, why in the world would he expect them to do that? Well, I think we have to keep reading to figure that out. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. So James does this great job of casting this vision for them. He says, there is a direction that we're going. There's a destination down the road. The destination is maturity and completion for you to be made whole in Christ. So we would, the way we say that here is Jesus-centered life, that you would have a Jesus-centered life. Everything you do, think, say, comes out of this center of who Christ is in your life. And James says, that's where we're going. And we're not there yet. I'm not there yet. I don't I couldn't say that everything in my life I do say and think is Jesus-centered, but that's where I'm going. And James says, perseverance through difficulty is the way. Perseverance through difficulty is the way. That's how we're gonna get where Jesus is trying to take us. So adversity then becomes not just something we have to put up with, but it becomes something that we need in order to grow. Um, I um, came across this concept uh, recently in some reading that um, really just kind of struck me. The, the, the new word is um, antifragile, that humans are antifragile. Some of you are like, you're just making up words. And to you, I would say, all words are made up. So humans are antifragile, which means if something's fragile, that means if you put pressure on it, it's going to break. If something is antifragile, it's the opposite of that. That means if you put pressure on it, it gets stronger. And humans are anti-fragile, that we are created to operate in such a way that we get stronger through pressure, through difficulty, through hardship. If you think about the way your immune system works, your immune system is anti-fragile. That means if you're exposed to small levels of bacteria at age-appropriate times in life, your immune system gets stronger so that when you are exposed to higher levels of those problems. Later in life, your immune system is strong enough to handle those things, right? That's why we encouraged our kids to eat dirt so that their immune systems would grow strong. One embraced it, the other were not so much. So I won't tell you which. So that's the same as true for our mental and emotional health, that we actually get stronger through pressure, through perseverance, through difficulty. It's what, it's what helps us develop resilience or grit, resilience and grit. That's the, that's the ability to push through difficult things because of what's on the other side, not just for the sake of enduring pain. Like we don't, we don't like pain. We don't like hardship. We don't just go out looking for ways to make our lives more difficult, but we endure it. We persevere through it because of what's on the other side, which is a Jesus-centered life, a life characterized by peace and joy and purpose. So that's what we're after. That's what we're doing. And uh, this is a very common concept in the teachings of Jesus, this idea of moving through difficulty. Andy talked about this earlier in his prayer. We don't, 
He never promised us an easy way. In fact, he promised us that life would be hard. And Paul writes about this in a very similar way to James. In, in Romans 5, Paul says, we also glory in our suffering. So glory is like shining bright. So glory is like, Paul says, we shine brightest in our suffering. Now, life doesn't really feel that way when you're suffering, does it? This is what Paul says. We shine brightest in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. So this is the path before us. And in order to really embrace this, we have to believe something that's true about God that we sometimes struggle to believe. And that is that our safety and comfort is not God's priority for us because it's not what's best for us. And we think, well, if God loves us, he wants to be safe and comfortable, right? But what if that's not what's best? If you've raised children, you know this principle is true, right? You love your children, and in general, you want them to be safe and comfortable. But you also know that if you create a bubble around them and you protect them from anything that could possibly disrupt their comfort, you're not doing them a favor, right? Because what do we know is true about life? There's adversity. Adversity is happening. And so when our kids come to us, when they, they first start to figure out what justice is, and we all have this internal sense of, of justice and what's right and wrong. And something happens that's unjust to our children. And they come to us and they say, that's not fair. And then we say to them, we respond to them the same way our parents responded to us and their parents responded to them all the way back to the beginning of, you know, probably the first children that were ever born. What do we say when our kids say, that's not fair? Life's not fair. Life's not fair. Like things are gonna happen to you that are unjust. And just like for our immune systems, injustice in small doses at age-appropriate levels makes us stronger and creates resilience and grit. So, I mean, there's some questions we have to really wrestle with in uh, that concept. If, if it's not God's priority for us to be safe and comfortable, then do we, do we get mad at him when our comfort is disrupted, when pain comes into our life? I want to be clear about a couple things as we talk about pain and suffering. And, and one is that um, James is not saying that we embrace tragedy stoically, that we just kind of, bad things happen, we just shrug it off and go, that's no big deal, I'm a Christian, right? That's, that's not what James is saying. Jesus didn't model that. When, when uh, John the Baptist died, do you know how Jesus responded to that? He spent an entire night in prayer. It, it affected him. When his friend Lazarus dies and he goes to see Lazarus' sisters who are grieving, Mary and Martha, does Jesus go to them and say, what, why are you crying? You know, you're, you're Jesus followers. You just shrug this off. This is no big deal. No, he does not do that because that would have been cruel and insensitive, right? So he sits down with them and he cries. So he's not saying like just stoically embrace tragedy. What he's saying is when, when we experience adversity, our attitude towards adversity can be like this, this can move me forward. I don't like this. I'm not supposed to like it, but it can push me. It can move me forward. It can move me to, to a, the place I'm trying to get to, a Jesus-centered life. Another thing that I think is important for us to just be aware of is that comparing our pain to the pain of others is typically unhelpful and sometimes hurtful. And so there are two ways that we do that, two directions that we go with that. Sometimes we'll, we'll be experiencing something painful in life and we'll hear someone else complain about pain in their life and we'll go, 
that's nothing. What are you complaining about? If you had any idea what I'm going through, you, you wouldn't have any right to complain about what you're going through because mine is much worse. Well, we don't actually know exactly what it's like to go through what they are. And pain is pain, right? There, there's, there's no like, you know, comparison. So comparing our pain to others in that direction, sometimes we go the other direction and we say, like what I'm going through is really hard. But I, I know this family that's going through something way worse. They lost a child or there's a cancer diagnosis or they lost a job. And we go, I have no right to complain because their life is so much worse. Well, maybe complaining is not the right response for us, but to deny that our pain is real is also not healthy and helpful. And so we don't, I just wanna caution you to catch yourself if you're comparing your pain to somebody else's to determine which is worse and who has the right to, to be suffering because pain is pain and it hurts for everyone. So um, what we're uh, gonna see here in James is that this idea of pushing through uh, adversity for the sake of what's on the other side is actually wisdom. And we spent four weeks recently talking about wisdom. And so it seems appropriate that that would come up. Um, there's a, a psychologist named Dr. Sharam Heshmet who speaks about adversity and wisdom in this way. He says, wisdom develops through mastery of crises. Wise people are able to apply valuable life lessons gained from previous experiences of coping with adversity when confronted with crises and obstacles in their lives. So he's saying the ability to push through adversity for what's on the other side is wisdom. Well, he didn't discover that because guess what James is gonna say next? James says, consider it joy when you face trials, produces perseverance, leads to maturity. The very next thing he says, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not, think, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So James says, okay, here's the goal. Have this attitude about adversity that it can be a good thing. It can move you in a positive direction. Have that attitude about adversity. In order to do that, you're gonna need wisdom. And if you feel like you don't have the wisdom to see adversity in this way, then just ask God. And the good news is God wants to give you wisdom. God has a lot of it. Like we talked uh, in our previous series about wisdom is uh, like an ocean and it's the ocean of God's wisdom. It's, we, we're never gonna get to the bottom of it. And all we have to do is ask. And when we ask, we believe that he will give us the wisdom we need to have this attitude about adversity that moves us towards something better. And so that's what he's inviting us into. So uh, this is uh, one element uh, that can hinder our maturity and growth is our attitude towards adversity. Another element that can hinder our maturity and growth is sin. That one's pretty obvious, right? You're like, yeah, we're in church. I figured sin was gonna come up eventually. So here it is. So James is then gonna talk about being tempted. And so let's read what he has to say about how this can hold us back from maturity. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James would say, okay, testing happens, your faith gets tested, 
Sometimes that's from God. I mean, we, we read enough stories in scripture to know sometimes God tests our faith. Now, I don't believe that every bad thing that happens in your life is from God, is a test from God. But it does happen. And so if that's the case, then what about temptation, the temptation to sin? Is that from God? James is pretty clear. No, God does not tempt you to sin. Persevering through testing makes you stronger. Sin does not. So one might come from God, the other one definitely does not. Where does temptation to sin come from? James says it comes from our own desires. It comes from what's in our heart. We often think it's about what we believe. Like if I just believe hard enough, if I believe the right things hard enough, then I won't be tempted to sin. How's that work out? Not so great. Because it comes from our desires. So we believe that God created us with certain desires. He put some things in us that, that, are, that are good and right. But the fallen world that we live in, the enemy that we have that wants to disrupt the kingdom of God will twist and distort those desires. There's a um, teacher, a pastor named John Mark Comer who wrote a book called Live No Lies that talks about this. And in this, he says that our desires get disordered. He calls them disordered desires. They start out good. They get shuffled by um, evil in the world and in our own hearts, and they get disordered. And that leads to sin. So he would say the desire for autonomy is a good thing, right? This desire, like, I, you know, if you've ever tried to help a three-year-old tie their shoes, and they're gonna say, I do it myself, right? We, some of us never grow out of that, right? I, I do it myself. Some of you never ask for help, even when you really need it, because I do it myself, right? That's the toddler in you. You need help. Everybody should ask. So um, John Mark Comer would say that desire for autonomy is actually a good thing, but it gets disordered, and that can lead to isolation, us cutting ourselves off from other people, which actually is, can lead to sin. He says the desire for intimacy is a good thing. Intimacy is like to know and be fully known. This is a good thing. It's something God put in us. But when that desire gets disordered, it often leads to sexual immorality because we use that as a substitute for true intimacy. And so these desires get disordered and lead us to sin. That's where um, temptation and sin comes from. And so what's, what's really true is that our desires often move us toward what we want and clouds our judgment about what is best. You probably don't have to think too far back to remember a time when that happened with you. Your desire moved you towards what you wanted and clouded your judgment about what was best. Anyone who's ever bought anything they couldn't afford has experienced this, right? I wanted something and it clouded my judgment about what was actually best. So this is uh, what James says is an obstacle to us growing in maturity and completion, to becoming like Jesus, to being, having a Jesus-centered life. So what do we do about it? Uh, he's gonna be really clear about that because James is clear about pretty much everything he says. So let's pick up in verse 22. Here's what we're supposed to do about it. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? There's no mystery to that. You're not reading that going, I wonder what he means. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it 
they will be blessed in what they do. So he says very simply, your problem is not that you don't know what to do most of the time. Your problem is you're not doing it. Some of you have heard that from your parents in different words. You know what you're supposed to be doing. You're just not doing it, right? Some of us hear this from our conscience. And so he uses this great image of somebody looking at themselves in a mirror. Why do you look at yourself in a mirror? Usually it's because you're, you're going out into public and you wanna make sure that if there's anything fixable, you can fix it, right? Some of us are like, I can't fix that, but you know, so it's, it happens. So if you look at your face in the mirror and there's something that needs to be fixed, you've got something on your face or your hair's out of place, never have that problem, you, you take care of it. If you don't, it's just silly. It's silly to look at yourself in the mirror, see something that needs to be corrected, and then walk away and do nothing about it. And James says, God's word is like a mirror. It, when, we, when we read God's words, it shows us the things that need to be corrected. How silly would it be for us to look at that, see what needs to be corrected, and then do nothing about it? He says, that's just silly. Don't, don't do that. Do something about what you read. And then he brings this full circle. He gives an example at the end, and he, uh, this is from the verses that Becky read earlier. Uh, he's gonna tell us what true religion is. Now, religion, uh, can, that word can be used different ways. In some uh, contexts, it's a negative thing. It's uh, the idea that um, uh, rituals in and of themselves can, uh, is, is the sum of our faith, that things that you do without thinking about it or with any heart behind it. But the way James uses religion and most people in his culture was just about how you connect with God. And so James says, here's what true religion is. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. James says, Here, here's an example. God is clear throughout scripture that we should be looking after those who are marginalized and vulnerable in our societies. You identify those people and you help them. And here's how he's coming full circle. I think sometimes you, if you read through James, it feels like he's jumping from one subject to another, but he's really, like there's a connection here. So he's circling back around to these first couple verses where he said, when you have suffering, adversity, trial in your life, I want you to think of it as an opportunity for growth. But when you see someone else experiencing suffering or pain or injustice, I want you to step in and help them. I want you to step in. Orphans and widows in his society were, they, they had no resources. They had, they had no way to provide for themselves. And, and James says, they're suffering, go help them. So we, our job then is to identify who are the marginalized, who are the vulnerable, who are the people in our communities who are hurting, who's experiencing injustice and oppression. Step in and help, step in and help. Our attitude about our own adversity is, this is an opportunity. God can use this to strengthen me, to build my resilience and grit so I become more Christ-like in my attitudes. When we see someone else suffering, our response is, and I just, I wanna help. If, if, I can, if I can help you move forward, I wanna do that. If everyone did that, so if that's how we saw our own adversity and that's how we saw other people's adversity, what would that look like? That would look like a, a community of people that helps each other through their difficulties. Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? a community of people who is helping each other through their difficulties. And then that spills over onto the community around us, the people outside our church family. We're helping them overcome their difficulties. And it just draws people to Jesus and it shows us the kind of life we were created for. I mean, it's evangelism at its heart when we do that. So this is James' challenge to us. So he's asking us to take a step of faith, 
Do what the word says, whatever you read. Some of you are like, well, it says a lot and that's overwhelming. Okay, just find one thing. Find one thing that you need to do. Look at the mirror, God's word as a mirror. Talk to the Holy Spirit as a mirror. Show me something that needs to be changed and then put people in my life that are gonna help me walk through this so that I'm moving forward to maturity, completion, a Jesus-centered life full of peace and joy and purpose. That's where we're going. And it's a difficult road, and James doesn't pull any punches when it comes to explaining that it's a difficult road, but he gives us this path forward, and we need each other. So I just I wanna ask you as we um, prepare to close that, you just take some time to think about that. Like, let's circle back to the question we started with. Does my faith make a real difference in my life? Does my faith make a real difference in my life? Is it countercultural? Can you tell a difference in the way I live and someone who doesn't know Jesus and how they live? What's different and why? And if, if there's no difference, then I need to start thinking about what's in the mirror and what, what needs to be changed and shaped in me. So um, we're gonna take a minute and just pray about that. I just wanna ask you to offer that question up to God. Does my faith make a real difference in my life? And then just listen. See if the Holy Spirit has something to say to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to, to hear from your word and to see it as a mirror that, that can show us what needs to be corrected and changed in our own lives. And I pray that you help us to shape our perspective of adversity based on um, your promises, that you, you can use the difficult things to grow us and move us forward. And I ask that you would do that in us. And as we look out for each other and for those in our community, God, we just pray that more and more people will be drawn to Jesus through our words and actions. In his name we pray, amen.